1: Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. How are you today? I'm doing really well. This is a great opportunity for us to talk to one of our colleagues. I'm
0: excited. We're going to have Dr. Marlon Cummings today. He runs Interdisciplinary Leadership for Superintendent Program.
1: Well, and he has a lot of experience, both in middle school and in public administration. So Dr. Cummings' career in education began in Washington, D.C., where he taught middle school science and math. And then while he was teaching, he was pursuing his master's in public administration with an emphasis in education policy. So after he was teaching, he worked for two years as the director of programs of a national nonprofit organization that focused on addressing issues of adolescent bullying and harassment for students in grades three through twelve. When he returned to Illinois, he worked for over eight years as a principal consultant with the Illinois State Board of Education. It was during this time he began working on his PhD, and he spent over seven years instructing and mentoring educators, earning graduate degrees in education, administration, and teaching. Immediately prior to joining us at GSU, he spent time working to promote equity in public education policy in Illinois as an employee with Advanced Illinois. Equity should be his middle name.
0: Yes, I am so excited about having him. I think, first of all, that you and I have this affinity to people who are middle school teachers. (laughs) I think that makes us all special. So it's great that he has that background in the schools, but he also has the strong advocacy background. That makes him so unique and great at what he does and then of course there's this natural way that he has of this just organic way of mentoring the men around him so i'm excited about talking to dr marlin cummings this morning
1: yes welcome good morning good morning dr cummings how are you i'm doing very well you know we wanted to talk to you about your passions i know that You and I have worked together presenting at conferences, culturally responsive pedagogy and what that looks like and the practical applications. So tell us more about your passions now. What are you researching and writing? Yeah,
2: that's a good question. Um, I think I remember when I uh, originally got into my doctorate program, I was I really cared about organizations and, and the culture within organizations and ultimately got away from that because I had done a lot of work in it prior to my dissertation and just got tired of it, but it was really where the heart and the passion of what I do lies is really about how do we improve organizations and really looking at that from a leadership standpoint. And leaders are critical in the success of organizations. And I think as organizations begin to diversify, it's really important that we have culturally responsive leaders. And so I spent a lot of time doing some research and culturally responsive pedagogy and really wanted to take that and use it and think about it in terms of culturally responsive leadership. There are are lots of authors already doing that work, but I think that um, I wanted to try to add to to what I've seen and try to support the people that I work with by, by doing research in that area.
0: So happy that you're talking about culturally responsive teaching because you have so much experience, So we're wondering what are the topics that we're going to talk about with Dr. Cummings? You know, we can go this way, we can go that way. So let's just stay on culturally responsive teaching for a while. And for me, there's so much about culturally responsive teaching is about how you feel about your students right and how you feel about people and wanting the absolute best for your student as you would for your own children when i think about that that just innate ability to do that how can one actually learn to be culturally responsive
2: it's a good question um, I, I think actually one of the foundations of cultural responsiveness is really about understanding self and owning what you bring to any classroom, situation, organization, experience. And I think when we first can be self-reflective and know what it is that we bring, what are the things in our past that hurt us? What are the things in our past that make us happy? What are the places and spaces that, that challenge us? And recognize that, own it, and then use that to move forward and to really think about your students. Because it's tough to have empathy for others when you don't really have to take stock in yourself. And I think it's really important for us as educators to know. Like, I come in with, I may be having a tough time at home, personal issues at home, or I got a kid that's not sleeping, or I got all these things that are going on. But, well, I even have a tough background and, and dealing with the death of a parent that was terrible to me. And so, you know, I'm dealing with that. But that doesn't matter because I'm coming into a classroom filled with 35th graders or sixth graders that are looking to learn from me, that are excited about learning. And I have to own what I'm bringing into it and somehow realize that how to use that and not ignore it but use it to to, to help support my own students and to have empathy for them because they are all are coming in with their own stuff too and so it, as the educator we have to be the ones to to recognize our own things so that we can then be in a position to support our students that come into our classroom
1: i like that yeah and you're in educator preparation when you're training when you're uh preparing these future educators what do you tell them about what cultural responsiveness looks like? How do we know when it's there and when it's not?
2: Yeah, so I think that one of the things that we have to do is really focus on equity. I think uh, cultural responsiveness is, is, is kind of rooted in equity. And so thinking about I have these five students in my classroom, and they, are, they all are in desperate need of help, right? But they may not all be in the need of the same type of help. And then I have the other 25 that are on on some other range of of academic success. And so I had to think about how do I support each of those students, not the 25 and the five, but the 30, right? And how do I look at each individual student and figure out what they need to support them? Now, sure, there are gonna be opportunities for me to group students and, and to not have to deal with every single thing, but I think it's important that in a classroom where the teacher understands their students, they know them, they know things about them. They can connect with them. They can recognize when a student is having a bad day. You can come into a classroom, and I would think that, like, if I'm watching a teacher coming in, as the students are coming in when, when school first starts, the teacher's talking to them. They know their names. They can tell when the student's having a tough time. They know when the kid's coming in and they're hungry, just because they are in tune with their students. They are recon- they, they are paying attention to who they are and not looking at them as a Black girl, brown girl, girl boy, whatever, low achiever, high achiever, but I see you as as Tommy with that has a parent that works late nights. And so you get to school late, but it's not because the parent doesn't care, but it's just because they're working late. And so they get you to school late. Sometimes you miss breakfast. I got a granola bar on my desk. To me, that's cultural responsiveness. That's the idea that I'm gonna, I'm I understand that there's some need there because I gotta I have to meet that need and have to recognize that challenge before I can get you to learn algebra or, or care about science or, or want to diagram with center?
0: Immediately, I put some of those things in practice when I became a teacher and I never knew anything about culturally responsive teacher. And it probably teaching because it probably came from some of the adversity that I had gone through and the fact that I had children because a big box of Cheerios was on my list every week. So every week I brought a big box of Cheerios into class Because I knew that many of my students were hungry and I wasn't going to be able to teach, or they weren't able, they weren't going to be able to learn unless they were fed. So I always had a big box of Cheerios on the side, something that I could afford. So it it made a huge difference. Another thing that I learned really early when I was teaching, I had all Latino children and they were recently from Mexico or Guatemala, and then trying to understand that dynamic and I wasn't getting homework back on Thursdays. I just was not. And so realized that, oh, they were going to church. Many of them were practicing Catholics. They were at church on Wednesday night. So it's like, okay, why am I forcing them to do homework on Wednesday night? If I want them to do homework five days a week, if that's my thing, well, I could just change that to Friday night instead of Wednesday night. So making those adjustments so that they could be successful we've been talking lately about integrating culturally responsive teaching standards in the curriculum at GSU you know Illinois is doing this and we're integrating it at GSU and my first reaction to that was really it's about time but my second reaction was like oh great and I'm sure you felt that way too what would you imagine some of those impacts once we integrate Crt into our curriculum
2: well I think you're going to have a teachers that are coming out with a different focus and thinking about education and where they want to be educators differently. It honestly, it probably will steer some people away from difficult challenges because you will realize that what you, you you will understand what you're going to be walking into, but it's also going to help students that get in a situation that, where they don't, didn't realize cultural responsiveness would be needed. And so I'll give you a quick example. So for example, maybe I'm a I'm a white teacher and I'm going into a moderately affluent school district to be a teacher and I am dealing with some issues where students are getting bullied right and it's and it has nothing to do with race or culture, it has a lot to do with maybe it's economics. And it has something to do with a kid that's being bullied because of the economic status. And I think a lot of times when we think about cultural responsibility, we often go to race and culture. But I think that what we're going to find is teachers that are going to be equipped to deal with a lot of different types of situations that don't, aren't just dealing with race or culture, but gender and, and economics and uh, social mobility and uh, religion. And even, and I mean, I feel like not even politics, right? These are things that, that if, if you are armed with cultural responsive, you understand that there are nuances w- within any classroom or any society. And so you are more equipped to deal with that and uh, not be overly challenged by those situations and to have some tools to, to confront those difficult situations.
1: So you're talking about arming future educators and, and them having these tools. What types of resources do you need to sustain the work of training educators in culturally responsive practices?
2: That's a great question, Dr. B. I think, you know, I really think it's going to take, and this is why why I've really been adamant about integrating more cultural responsiveness in my leadership programs, just because, you know, it starts with leadership. You know, you got to have school leaders that are infusing it into teacher development days or at the beginning of the year when you're doing those institute days and you're training and you're, you're working on curriculum, we need to spend some time talking about what does this mean and what does this practice mean? And then having an open and honest conversations about it both in our staff meetings and our grade level meetings and it doesn't it shouldn't be something that we do at the beginning of the year and then go and do it and then we do it again at the beginning of every year and we don't really talk about it we need to have conversations about it and and again uh, that that has to be that has to start from the top so i think providing teachers with professional development ongoing like at the beginning of the year at checkpoints maybe after each quarter or at the at the semester break checking in about the ch- challenges that they're facing and having opportunity and space to talk about it. And I think some of it is just that, right? There's this uh, issue that I've been reading a lot about around secondary trauma for educators. So it's this idea that I am uh, pouring into my students and I have, and I and I want my students to succeed and I'm taking in all of their stuff because I want to help them. But the fact is, I can't help all of them. I can maybe help 20, 30, 40, 50, 70 percent of them, but I just, I, I can't get to 100 percent. And so then I begin to take on some of that stuff. And so I think an important part of maintaining teachers' um, ability to be not only culturally responsive, but do it with with the passion that they've always done it with, is to continue to have that follow-up and conversations and dialogue and continual training on it. And I don't think it's something where you do it one time and it goes away. You You have to continue to have conversations about it.
0: And you mentioned that some teachers, this was interesting, that some teachers or teacher candidates will make a decision not to go to a certain school district, right? Based on their disposition and or how they embrace culturally responsive teaching. And and that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. That's part of knowing yourself and being honest with yourself. And they w- may want to go to a school that, where they feel comfortable with more uniform because otherwise that's where we experience the challenge with teacher retention, right? Where there's a poor match of the teacher and the demographics of that school or the mission of that school. So what would you say some of the greatest challenges of making culturally responsive programs successful?
2: So right, it's that buy-in that really is the, that can get cultural responsiveness to really stick. And I think that happens again through and a, a school leader saying, look, we're, this is something that we're committed to because we see not only can it support our students, but as you were just mentioning before, it can be a really big boost for retention because I I have some ability to know how to manage this difficult situation, know how to manage this challenging classroom. And so I think one of the things is providing professional development and getting that buy-in from teachers. And then having some stick I think I think oftentimes when education, we we do something and when we don't see an immediate result, we're like, oh, let's try something else. Oh, let's try something else. And every year we're trying something new As, instead of saying, we're going to do this. We're going to have a plan and we're going to stick to it and let the intermittent, the, the slow progress happen and watch and, and give it time to mature and to maturate. And I think that I think that's one of the things that, that we have to do. Continue to work on buy-in, prepare, on PD and, and let it maturate.
0: Okay, so sticking with leadership for just a moment, we know that there's a huge disparity with minorities and boys being suspended and placed in special education. I mean, there's a huge disparity and we know that change starts at the top. So what do leaders need to do to make this change?
2: Uh, the way that I kind of think about this process for leaders is one, it's they have to first be introduced to this idea of cultural responsibility, and then they need to deal with their own. Again, I think it always begins with us as an educator, like dealing with what we bring to a situation, our background, our past, all of the cultures that we bring into a space and recognizing that and being confident and in, in just owning who you are, From there, I think it's about then building it into your school culture, right? And I think that that is something, and it has to be purposeful. It can't be something that's on the side, right? I'm going to do professional development. We're going to talk about it in class. We're going to talk about it in our all-staff meetings. I'm going to have you infuse it into social studies, or we're going to have a a period where it's just like, like homeroom, right? I'm going to have homeroom where we're going to talk about these things every day in homeroom, maybe 10 minutes or so. We're going to talk about some challenges and have it be something where it's within the school. That also means that I need my, my, security guard to be trained. I need my cafeteria workers. I need my custodians, right? Because I want that, that cafeteria worker that when that kid comes in 20 minutes late, 10 minutes past the bell, and they're hungry, I know that the cafeteria is closed, but you give them a granola bar and you send them to class because you know that they're hungry. Because what what, what will happen is, and I've seen it happen, that kid doesn't get fed, then they come in the classroom and then they wreck shop. They just tear it up because, not because they're having a bad day, because they're just hungry, right? And so thinking about and making sure that not just my teachers, not just myself, but my staff, all of the students, not just the students that are challenged in school, but even the students that are my, my high flyers, I want them to be thoughtful and being culturally responsive, right? And I want everybody to buy into this idea of how we can work together and live in the space and be thoughtful and empathetic towards one another.
1: Buy-in is so important whenever you're talking about staff and faculty and the teachers. Describe the need for leaders, Particularly, leaders who are culturally responsive or use culturally responsive pedagogy in their practices. Uh, so many initiatives start from the top. What about the need for leaders?
2: Yeah, I mean, again, I think that just as we are trying to do it in our teacher prep programs, we need to do it in our in our, in our principal prep and our superintendent prep. We need to help them to understand that this is an important part of what what you're going to, what you're jumping into, particularly in. Illinois, right? When you look at Chicago and the Collar counties, I mean, the demographic shifts are there. I have, I have many students that do their research on this challenge that teachers are facing in doing this demographic and looking at this demographic shift and trying to figure out how to deal with it. So I think that as a leader, I need to understand that these are the school districts that I'm walking into. I'm not walking into a space where it's, you know, mostly one race and and then just a little bit of another, or mostly one language and a little bit of another. I may be walking into a district that was traditionally all white or traditionally all black and now has Arab students or has Asian students, and they are speaking those languages. And then those students and their parents have particular culture. And how do those parents and cultures engage education educational spaces and I have to be thoughtful and aware of that so I think it's critical for for leaders to do it because I mean even if I if I as a teacher am putting that in my school and put I'm putting that in my classroom and and all of the school and the students that I work with if my neighbors on my right and my left aren't doing it, and I'm in a middle school, when they're jumping from class to class, it's like they're walking into different environments. So it's not, they're not get they're getting a little bit of it, they're getting a taste of it, but they're not in that environment. And the only way they can do that is by the school leader making it something that that they make it a part of their vision for the school. And the thing is, and the one thing I talk to my leaders about is when I say buy-in, I don't mean 100%, right? Because you're she, just not going to get 100%. What I need is a critical mass. I need that tidal wave of teachers to say, hey, look, this is what we're doing. And either you're going to go along, you're going to get swept up in the tidal wave, or maybe we'll good luck to you on your next in your next role, right? And I talk right. to my, my administrators about this. building a team that will buy into your vision for your school and your vision for your school, whatever it may be has to have some element of cultural responsiveness to it.
0: I love it. R. Shay Cooper, I don't know if you know R. Shea Cooper, but he grew up on the west side and he's the author of A Most Beautiful Thing. This is a book is about the first black rowing team. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you can imagine that taking place on the west side of Chicago, and he talks about how instrumental his principal was in making sure their team was successful because they had to stay at school late or they had to go to school early And in their neighborhood, there was no safe passage. I mean, if you weren't walking with other students, you were basically, I mean, you were dead meat. And so her having that wherewithal to say, okay, I need a special bus to go pick them up or I need to create a situation by which they can get to school safely so they could be successful in their sport. Just having that wherewithal of what that particular student needs in order to be successful. And like you said, those needs are different for every student in your classroom. I was wondering if you had any success stories that you could share with us, because I I like his story. So I wanted to hear personally from you if you had any success stories that you could share with us.
2: That's a good question. So I, I think I've had a few, some at different stages. When I I'll just give a few of them very short ones so that you know we can move on. But I think that when I was teaching middle school, um, it's probably like my second year of teaching, and what I realized is that students were coming into my classroom after lunch. This particular group was seventh grade, which they are nightmares. Okay, seventh graders are terrible people. I love them. They it would just be chaos. It would just be complete chaos, and people would be talking and buzzing and all this stuff. And what I realized is what I would take, I started to take five minutes at the beginning of my class, and it would just be total like social hour. I would just sit in front of the classroom. I'm like, what's going on? Tell me about what happened. Well, so-and-so is fighting this person. So-and-so is dating this person. So-and-so like this and all these things, right? And it was an opportunity for them to get all this stuff out that they were buzzing. And I would let them talk across the classroom, all this stuff. We would have five minutes of let's get it out, right? And then we could get back to, to the classroom. And so for me, for me, that was one thing that I feel like I was like very thoughtful in terms of like, you know what, I'm not going to be able to get to what I want to get to until they get to what they want to get to. So it was that kind of recognizing what my students needed in that moment. And we would do it every day. And some days they didn't even really need it. They just wanted to get to work. Right. But there were those days when it was buzzing and I left space for that. And so it was just that that idea that while education is important, they're not going to be thinking about that until they can talk about this other stuff. Right. Another time was after, after teaching, I went into doing bullying, harassment training for teachers. And the one thing that I I think it was a real win for me is helping students to understand. It really wasn't really students. It was really administrators. I think it was really the, the administrators that ended in the space. It didn't matter if you were in an affluent area or low-income area or a high-needs area or a parochial, you know, like religious base, any of these, it like, you can do this work, right? This is something that we can recognize and be thoughtful about the need for, for students to have space, to have conversations about difficult things, and for us as educators to really listen, to allow what they're saying to have, like, let that be their truth and then help them to move from where they are to where we want them to be. So I think that oftentimes in urban areas, I think uh, you mentioned on it a little bit where all the focus was just on classroom management. I could We never got to the learning. And so helping educators to know that like, this is a, like you need to make space for us for dialogue between for me to get to know a student, for us to like, for me to let a student have a bad day or for us to, you know what? on Thursday, I didn't get a lot done because we were having, we needed to get through some other things that the students were dealing with, right? And from there, then we were able to move forward. And I think in using this, what what administrators realize is that I'm really able to connect with my my students and my parents when I'm making space to under, learn about my students and learn who they are. And so to me, those are, those are two areas where I just felt like, I really felt good about the work that I was doing, and I guess one other example is, and I talked about this before, but like I was teaching a class when I was a graduate student, and it was a, a student. He was it was a white male. He came up to me after class, and he was talking about um, he didn't understand. We were talking. It was race and culture, and, you know, and society and education. And he was, didn't get it. He was like, doc, he was like I wasn't Dr. <laughs> he said, you know, Professor, I'm not a, you know, I don't get this. I'm not racist. That's not who I am. I don't approach things like that. I don't understand. Like, I know I'm a white guy and I know I have this privilege, but that's not who I am. And for me, it was telling, talking and having that conversation about this idea that some of this is broken down person to person, right? It's not this thing where somebody's going to make a speech on tv and everybody's going to feel different about race and culture and ethnicity and religion and all this stuff it's going to be like this somebody turning on this podcast and listening and saying "Hmm, i didn't think about that or me presenting it in class and switching on that light switch and saying hi i didn't see it from that perspective right and beginning to turn the tide there and i feel that to me that one interaction helped me to see that like I can make changes and it may not be this broad chain, but in those one-to-one interactions, in my interactions with my students, and then their interactions with the people who they encounter, that's where I can really have the impact. So
1: I really like what you're saying about listening and seeing the person. What are some qualities of being a thoughtful leader in an organization? So if you were to boil it down to a set of characteristics, what would those be?
2: One, I think, I think two big ones. Again, I'm kind of beating the or a little bit, but self-awareness, recognizing who I am as a leader, what my strengths, my weaknesses are, where do I need to build this and another thing? Where do I need to build my team? I'm not good at this. I need somebody to help me with that, right? I'm not, I don't do good with discipline. Let me get somebody that's good with, right. Oh, I'm not good with finance. So self-awareness, but also individual consideration. So it, it, this idea that I am considering my individual teachers, my staff, my students, the families that I'm dealing with, the cultures in my sphere. So I think leaders that, that can do those two things, like I know who I am and I'm thoughtful about the individuals within my space. Those tend to have places that, that thrive, right? And I, and I think, I mean, also with, you know, you need to have some organization <laughs> there as well. I think those two things, if I wanna build a culturally responsive environment is those two big things that really are the drivers to, to creating those types of spaces.
1: I know you've done some mentoring. We've talked about that in the past, or maybe it's informal, but how does mentoring play a role in someone's development as a professional, especially an aspiring leader?
2: So in teaching, like I've been having a lot of these conversations because my uh, my students are, I teach leadership theory class. And so a lot of my students are in this space, right? And I think that we bring in folks to our program that are already leaders, right? You can have this kind of ability where you either kind of have an ability to be a leader, or you've had experience that have put you in leadership roles. But what I think it is that leaders really need extra support. They need, one, they need theory, right? So they need to read or get some type of development, but they also need coaching, somebody that can help them to see their blind spots, to help them to realize what they're good at, what they're not, help them to develop. Abilities that they didn't realize that they needed. And I think that as a leader, we can't do this on our own. We need people to pour into us to help us to be, to help us to reach our full potential. I think that mentoring plays a huge role in the ability for school leaders, teachers to be successful, right? The really great teachers... Typically, they probably had a mentor teacher that was in that building, and they were like, hey, do this, and think about it in this way, or have you thought about this, or try doing this. It just helps you to, to really improve on what you're already doing. Like I, I don't think, like particularly in social service, we're, we're leaders or, or workers in those spaces. We can't do this work on our own. It's not work that can be done on our own. It is by design to be done collaboratively. If you find yourself in a space where you're the leader of an organization, go out and find other people who you can collaborate with, and who you can talk with, and who can help you to be a better you. And I think that the mentoring is a, it plays a huge role, is, is key to that. And that's why I take on those mentor roles. I, I think they're better when they happen naturally. Um, they don't have to be natural. I think you can seek out mentorship. You should. But usually, if you're an aspiring leader and, you, and you're moving forward and you, you're trying to have some trajectory to your career, you likely have somebody in your sphere that can be your mentor. It's just about reaching out and and asking them, or just harassing them and meeting with them all the time, or or Absolutely. like comparison does to me, she just bosses me around and tells me what to do.
0: <laughs> it's always <laughs> do best when it it's organic, but you can create it, but it is always right. best. And that's a whole nother topic for us. And that's going to be our next conversation with you about mentoring, because mentoring, I mean, that's a big investment. It's an investment in human resource, sometimes in financial resources, but there's a bigger return. For that investment, definitely. Next time, we're going to talk about mentoring. I think now, uh, Dr. Amy wants to know what do you have on your bedside. What are you reading?
2: But I'm reading uh, "Focus" by Mike Schmoker. I can bring him up. Okay. So "Focus" is really about um, improving student learning and how do we work on that? Um, and in working with student leaders, I want to think about you know how do I develop them? Another book that I'm rereading it's called "The White Architects of Black America." It's by William Watkins. I mean it's really just looking at this issues of culture race, and race in our society. And it just gives you a really good perspective on some of the challenges that we're seeing in culture and race and politics now. I mean, they just keep they just keep coming up, right? They just keep coming up. And and he talks a lot about that and how the dominant culture has has really had an impact on black education. And then I'm also reading because it was given to me and I'm just kind of thumbing through it the fall of faculty which is a GSU book that we're reading and really looking at this idea of an administrative takeover of higher education. And that was uh, pretty interesting to read. Another book that I think is really important I want to throw out there that um, I think it's great. And I've been talking to my students about it is Strengths Finder. Um, I think it's a really good book to think about in terms of when we thinking about de- developing leaders, like thinking about where Strengths Finder looks at what are my strengths and as opposed to focusing on the things that I'm not good at, what are the things that I'm good at and how do I find places and spaces where I can utilize those strengths for, for my own success. That's what I'm reading.
1: Excellent. It's been great talking to you today. I'm fascinated with your work and I'm hoping that one day in the future we can present live together, Been able to in the past, the closures, it's kind of hard to do any traveling. So that'll be fun. And I'm yeah. looking forward to the next conversation.
0: You are outstanding, Dr. Cummings. Our listeners are going to get a lot out of this.
2: I certainly hope so. And also, I'm gonna be uh, also talking about the same thing, culturally responsive leadership with the Illinois Principals Association, South Cook. So I'm oh, okay, for them on this topic as well. And that stemmed from a recent publication that I had on making a case for culturally humble leadership practices through a culturally responsive leadership framework. And so if you're looking for that, that's in Human Service Organizations, Management, Leadership, and Governance, that journal um, that was recently published. So just excited about this work. Excited to be on here. Honored to be uh, an interviewee here.
0: We're lucky to have you. We heard it here first.
2: Well, thank you so much. And I I really appreciate this opportunity to be here and and to share some of my um, experience with you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson.
0: We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching.
1: We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in
0: hearing? We'll leave it up to you. Our listeners, did theory or practice win the match? I think it was
1: theory probably this time.
0: Uh, practice.
1: Until next time, we're Dr. Amy.
0: And Dr. Joy.